Good morning, everyone. Well, we come this morning to the last of our seven signs in John's Gospel. We began with sign number one, which happened at a wedding. And here we are at sign number seven, at a funeral. And as we've worked our way through all of these signs, hopefully you have been able to see how they have pointed to who Jesus is. They have shown him to be the fulfilment of the Old Testament law. They've shown him to be the promised one who was to come. And they have shown him to be God incarnate. Each sign has revealed the glory of God and each sign has prompted a reaction from the people. Sometimes those have been positive reactions of belief. But other times they've been negative reactions, disbelief, concern uh, and sometimes even anger. Today's sign, with the exception of Jesus' own uh, crucifixion and resurrection, would have to be the climax of his public ministry. It is the most dramatic of all of the signs, and the account of this particular sign is longer than any of the others. So we're not going to read it all this morning because it's a very long chapter. There's a very long build-up, and within that build-up, there is a sense of tension that results from Jesus' decision to stay where he is instead of going straight to Lazarus, who is not well. This is also the most personal of all of the signs. It's the only one in which the subject of Jesus' miracle working is actually given a name, Lazarus. And clearly, as we go through the story, you'll see that there is a very strong bond between Jesus and Lazarus, but also between Jesus and that whole family, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. There is also a very strong tension evident as we go through this sign between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. On one hand, the humanity of Jesus as a man who has friends, who has feelings, who shows emotions, who feels the pain of others and who weeps with them. And then on the other hand, the divinity of Jesus, who is the all-knowing, miracle-working saviour, who's come to earth to do his Father's will. Now, surprisingly, for such a significant sign, a sign which is so central to the gospel message, this one of resurrection hope and of eternal life, John's is the only gospel that records this particular sign. There is no mention of it in the three synoptic gospels. And that begs the very obvious question, why? Why would these other three writers leave out something that seems to be so important and so central to the whole message of the gospel? Well, we don't know for sure, but there are some indications, perhaps. If we skip ahead, so before we actually get to the sign itself, we're going to skip ahead to the outcome of that sign. And if we skip ahead to the outcome of the sign, we see what people's reaction to it was. More than any other sign, 
this particular one got the attention of the people. And more than any other sign, this particular one caused the Jews to believe in Jesus. And people were coming from everywhere to see not only Jesus, but to see Lazarus. When you read the accounts of the triumphal entry of Jesus, many of the people who were there were there because of this sign that Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. And all of this interest in Lazarus and the resulting of many Jews putting their faith in Jesus is getting the interest of the religious leaders of the time. And we're told in John chapter 12, verse 9, then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and were believing in Jesus. So it is possible that this particular miracle was omitted from the Synoptic Gospels because they were written earlier and perhaps this particular threat was still very real on Lazarus's life at that time. We don't know, but that's one possible reason. Now, we don't have time to read together all of chapter 11. It's a long chapter, so I'm just going to draw your attention to a few of the key details that are there in the introduction to that long chapter. With even just a cursory read, one thing stands out from that introduction loud and clear, and that is death. We see it in the many ways it's expressed up there, death, died, dies, die, dying, dead. It's repeated throughout chapter 11. And it's repeated directly, but it's also referred to um, indirectly in references to things like the tomb, which of course we associate with death, to the loss of the two sisters, uh, to the comfort, the Jews who'd come to comfort the sisters, uh, the f mention of the four days that the body had already been in the tomb, the mourning that was happening with the Jews there at that time, the weeping, the sisters are weeping, Jesus himself is weeping. And then there's that very graphic reference that is made by one of the sisters who cautions Jesus when he wants the tomb to be opened um, because there's going to be a bad odour because the body's already been there for four days. And all of this is presenting for us a very clear picture. This man is dead. And when I look at what's going on in this chapter, it reminds me of a, a scene from The Wizard of Oz. Now, maybe none of the rest of you look at this chapter and see The Wizard of Oz, but for me, it's what comes up. There is a scene in that story after the, the tornado has taken the house and dropped it on the, the Wicked Witch of the East, I think it is, and her little legs are sticking out. They call in the coroner. And the coroner has to examine the scene and the coroner gives his report. And he, he comes along and he says, as coroner, I must aver, I've thoroughly examined her. And she's not only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Now, I, I'm not telling you this because I'm any sort of special fan of The Wizard of Oz, 
but my brother did have to play the coroner in the primary school production of The Wizard of Oz. He only had one line in the whole play, that was it. And I heard it thousands of times in our house as he practiced and practiced and practiced his lines. So it just, it's there in the back of my mind. And when I read something like this, that's what I think about. This man, Lazarus, the writer of this gospel is trying to tell us he's not only merely dead, he is really most sincerely dead. Now, when I say he's really most sincerely dead, what I'm referring to here is this belief that the Jews had that after a body died, a person died, the soul would hang around and hover over the body for a few days, maybe three days, before it departed. And so what the writer here is trying to tell us is that this is not Jesus ministering to a very sick person on the point of death. Nor is the body in that state within the three days. There are several references in here to four days. Those references are important. What they're saying is that there's no chance that this happened within that three-day period when the Jews believed that the soul was still hanging around. This man, Lazarus, he's not just merely dead. He is really most sincerely dead. There are two other accounts of Jesus raising uh, a person back to life. And this one is set apart from them because of that period of four days. So um, Jairus's daughter, she was raised back to life by Jesus from around about the point of death. And then there was the son of the widow of Nain and Jesus encounters him on, uh, during his funeral procession. And he too is raised back to life. Those two, you could say, were merely dead. They were within that window, but not Lazarus. He is most sincerely dead. So where is Jesus at this point? The end of chapter 10 tells us he's moved back across the Jordan River to the place where John was baptising. And there he had stayed with his disciples. Many people were coming to him and believing in him. Now, confusingly, that region is known as the region of Bethany. Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. As opposed to Bethany in Judea, the town where Lazarus and his two sisters lived. So back in Bethany, in Judea, the town, we're introduced to a man named Lazarus and we are told of his sister Mary and Martha, the same Mary who poured the ointment on, or the perfume on Jesus and wiped his hair with her feet. So that tells us that the writer of this gospel expected his readers to be familiar with that event probably because the accounts of it were circulating already in the other three Gospels. So there's another hint there that this is a later Gospel written after those other three. It also tells us that Mary adored Jesus. And as we go through uh, this chapter today, we see that 
Jesus had very strong feelings for this whole family. Um, and that's spelled out for us in verse 5. So the sisters send word, you know, it's like Bethany 1 to Bethany 2. Um, they send word over the, the Jordan River, Lord, the one you love is sick. And Jesus' reaction would probably have been incomprehensible to the sisters and probably to his disciples as well because at least initially he does nothing. He makes no attempt to move from that place nor does he make any attempt to heal Lazarus from a distance which they were well aware that he could have done if he'd wanted to. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for these two sisters. They would have witnessed Jesus having healed many, many people before. And yet now when it comes to the one that he supposedly loves so much, his good friend Lazarus, he appears to be doing nothing at all about it. What can we take from this? Well, clearly we cannot equate God's delays to our requests with any lack of care. He cared deeply for this man Lazarus and for his entire family, and yet there's a delay. And those who are doing uh, revelation with us in KYB will have seen God's delay in answering the prayers of the martyrs. Initially, they are told to wait a little while longer. Doesn't mean that God didn't care about their prayers. He cared about them very much. And their prayers were being answered, but they just needed to wait a little bit longer. In the same way, Jesus did not give these sisters what they had hoped for, at least not initially. They could see their situation in earthly terms. Jesus, of course, had a much broader perspective. Their perspective in this situation, a perspective that was shared by the Jews who had come to them to mourn with them and to comfort them, was that if he had been there, their brother would not have died. And the Jews wonder... Could not this one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus has a very different perspective. In verse 4, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then in verses 14 and 15, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there, so that you might believe. And those words sound like something that we've become very familiar with as we've moved through this series. The purpose of John's gospel. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So belief and life they are two very important themes within this gospel and they culminate quite spectacularly in this particular sign. 
So after waiting for two days, Jesus finally announces to his disciples that they are going to leave the region of Bethany and head over to Bethany in Judea. And his disciples object strongly on account of the fact that last time they were in that region, Jesus narrowly escaped death by stoning. And Jesus responds to them with a parable that teaches that the real danger for the disciples here is not death, it is stumbling. And this parable draws on some of his earlier teaching that night is coming and no one can work in the night but that Jesus is the light of the world and so while they have the light they must make every opportunity that they have for ministry and so must we. And so they head off towards Bethany in Judea, even Thomas, who seems pretty convinced that they will be walking to their own deaths, but who trusts Jesus enough to go anyway. The travelling party eventually arrives in Bethany in Judea four days after the body of Lazarus has been placed in the tomb. Bethany is living up to its name which means house of affliction. The Beth part means house, and the other part in the original language means affliction. This is the house of affliction. Both the sisters are grief-stricken. Both are convinced that if Jesus had arrived earlier, their brother would not have died. But in the midst of her grief and of her disappointment, Martha is still able to verbalise her trust in Jesus. She says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus tells her that her brother will rise again. And Martha confirms, yes, I know, he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. But that's not all that Jesus wants her to know. And we come to what would have to be one of the most important I am statements in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He's telling her that not only does he have power over death, but that he actually is life. To believe in him is to have life in the fullest sense of the word. It is to have life as God intended life to be. Not just living as a physical being here in this world, in our physical bodies for as long as they hold out for us, but living in the fullness of Christ living as God intended us to be, spiritually alive and reconciled with him. And so in that sense, he's telling her that eternity begins not at the point of physical death, but at the moment a person believes in him, the moment a person becomes a Christian. And then Jesus adds, do you believe this? 
and listen to Martha's answer. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Now, that should sound fairly familiar. We've heard it just about every week. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And so we know that Martha had that life in his name. Now Martha gets a pretty bad rap for being the sister that rushes around, makes all the preparations while Jesus uh, comes to their house and she complains about the lack of assistance that she's getting from Mary while Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. But here... It's 10 out of 10 for Martha with this statement of faith that so closely anticipates that summary that John gives us in chapter 20. She believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we can conclude that she has life in his name. Seeing Mary and Martha and all who'd come to comfort them weeping, Jesus is described here as deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And the gospel writer here chooses an unusual Greek verb to describe Jesus at this point. It doesn't translate well into English. The word gives a sense of a deep kind of agitation mixed with a, a dash maybe of anger. Perhaps Jesus is all stirred up about what sin has brought into the world. All the sickness and the hurt and the pain and the death and the grief and the suffering that he now sees personified on the faces of these two sisters that he loves so much. And all of that agitation and emotion and that anger expresses itself in a most human way as tears streaming down the face of God incarnate. So we pick up the story here from verse 38. You might want to follow along with us if you've got Bibles with you. John 11, we're going to read uh, from verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and there was a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, and you've got to love Martha at this point for her practicality, Martha said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odour for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he'd said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now Spurgeon has a note here at this point that he believes that he had to 
speak to Lazarus by name because if he didn't, by his power, there'd be bodies rising up everywhere from all of the tombs around the area. I don't know. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and with his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. Jesus, uh, Lazarus was free of the grave, but he was still dressed in the trimmings of death. Jesus had done the work of bringing new life forth out of the grave, but others would be needed to help loose him from all of those things that still tied him to death. Unbind him and let him go. That was the command to those who had witnessed this transformation to new life. And it is still the command today to those who witness this transformation to new life in the lives of others. Unbind them and let them go. Help them to break free from habits, from old attitudes, from old thought patterns, from old beliefs, from addictions, from nagging doubts, from poor self-worth from difficult pasts or whatever is holding them back and preventing them from living their life in the freedom that Christ wants them to live it. Unbind them and let them go. This is truly an amazing sign that Jesus has performed. It is a paradigm shifter one that completely changes what people believe. For many centuries, human beings believed that the earth was stationary and that the sun moved around the earth. That was the dominant paradigm at the time. Then along came a man called Copernicus. And Copernicus proved that what seemed self-evident actually was not true at all. Actually, the earth was moving around the sun rather than the sun moving around the earth. That was a paradigm-shifting revelation about the way the solar system works. In the same way, Jesus has done the same sort of thing for our understanding of life and death. Not just because he has the power to raise anyone he wants to raise at any time, because he's changed the way that we must think about life and death. True life as God intended it to be doesn't begin at the moment of conception or at the moment of birth. That's physical life. True life as God intended it to be doesn't end with death. Physical life does. But that's not the life that God intended for us. Life as he intended it to be in all of its fullness in Christ begins at the moment a person puts their faith in him, at the moment that they become a believer in Christ. At that point, death is arrested and true life begins. Well, this particular sign is the climax of the seven signs in John's Gospel. It has at its focus that key theme of life 
eternal, a theme that permeates the whole gospel. It provides the most powerful demonstration of who Jesus really is as the source of eternal life, and it powerfully displays both his humanity and his divinity. And it also gifts us um, the most powerful of all of the I am statements. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So this final sign also acts like something of a hinge between this first half of the Gospel of John that we've covered with these signs, the Book of Signs, and the second half that many commentators call the Book of Glory. And it does that because of the reaction of the people to this final sign. And that sets in motion a train of events that ultimately lead to Jesus' own death and his resurrection. As a result of this sign that was witnessed by so many of those who'd come to comfort the sisters and share in their grief, many put their faith in Jesus. In fact, so many that a meeting of the Sanhedrin had to be called to figure out what they were going to do about it. Verse 48 lays out for us their primary concern. Listen to this. If we let him go on like this, that's Jesus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they will take away both our place and our nation. Now, the most remarkable part in the deliberation of these Sanhedrin comes when that year's high priest, Caiaphas, confronts the rest of the group. He says, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation would perish. And hopefully you can feel the irony that is dripping in that particular statement. Here stands the high priest and he's effectively passing judgment on the great high priest, the one that God would send for his people, and what he's calling for is murder. That's what Caiaphas meant. Get rid of him, get him out of here so that the Romans will leave us alone, we'll have our nation, and all of us will retain our positions of authority. But verse 51 tells us that Caiaphas didn't speak on his own. His were words of prophecy. He intended murder, but God intended atonement. He intended that his anointed one would be sacrificed to atone for our sins. So that hinge swings open and the wheels are set in motion for the events that would lead to Jesus' death and resurrection, an irony of ironies the religious leaders will put to death, the one who has just revealed himself to be the resurrection and the life. So we come to the end of seven wonderful signs, seven wonderful signs written for one single purpose, that you may believe that Jesus Christ 
is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in his name. So as we draw to a close and as we come to an end of these seven signs, there really is one, only one question that remains and that is the question that Jesus posed to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Promised One? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for these seven wonderful signs that show us just who Jesus is and why he came. Father, we pray this morning for any who are hearing this message today and who might be struggling to believe. May your spirit bring insight. May your Holy Spirit pursue them and not let them go until they reach that point that Martha reached where she could say without a shadow of a doubt, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into this world. Amen.